When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Williams wants to fade, stoops in the end zone for a touchdown Oklahoma. The stoops you hear from the crowd could be for father or son. And I think it's definitely for son after that catch. What's up, Oklahoma fans? Special treat because we have the one and only Rich DeCray back for this episode of the Sooner Nation podcast. And uh, super excited because now I get to ask true or false questions to somebody else. And instead of me bearing the brunt of all that, it's somebody else uh, going into the hot seat. So, Rich, uh, what that's going to come up later on. We'll close out the podcast with that. But let's start with um, the big story, Oklahoma. 72 to 62 over your West Virginia Mountaineers, Rich, a, a game that was an absolute must win for the Sooners. And not only did they did it, did not only did they did it, not only did they do it, uh, but they did so in double digit fashion. And you just, you know, they set they set some distance between themselves and the Mountaineers in the first half and then just kind of kept them at an arm's length throughout the second half, leading by eight at the break and winning ultimately by 10. And they did it. In the type of fashion that you would, you're kind of coming accustomed to Porter Mosier, which is kind of a hard-nosed defense and and taking timely shots. They shot above 50% from the floor, uh, 51.1% to be exact. They only missed one out of 22 free throws. But on the flip side is they held the Mountaineers to 37% from the floor, 25% from three-point range and more importantly rich they out rebounded the mountaineers 32 to 26 and so uh, when, when you're looking at trying to pick up a win on the road that that's what you got to do you got to shoot high percentage shots you got to play defense and you got to rebound and this was uh, do you agree like this was an absolute must-win situation for them coming out of a four-game losing streak i i do think it was you look at west virginia and oklahoma who have very similar records at this point of the season, but you're you're really looking at what lies ahead for Oklahoma taking to the road, facing number one Auburn. I never thought we would say that in the realm of basketball. Number one, the Auburn Tigers. It's going to be a tall task for Oklahoma. And of course, you want to be building some momentum as you headed to those types of contests. Matt, but when we look backwards at the West Virginia game. I I don't want people to have the impression that it was a perfect performance. There were still some weak points that were on display. And I know everybody wants to talk about this surge in the second half, but late in the second half, there were some glaring Mm -hmm. and problematic issues that once again, reared their ugly head. Something that I believe we've seen over that four game losing streak. Still Oklahoma is going to get the win. They're making some changes. Porter Mosier is tinkering. And trying to find a catalyst for this offense, for the defense as well. Trying to find a single player who can be the catalyst on both sides of the ball and spark this team to a a few consecutive wins. I don't know that they'll they'll get a second win here knowing what's on the horizon. But nonetheless, 
a win in the win column puts Oklahoma a little closer to that magic number of 20. Yeah, they're seven away at 13 and seven on the season. And, and I, I want to come back to, um, to Auburn here in just a second. But the biggest thing uh, to me, when you look at this game, the biggest storyline here is Elijah Harkless only getting four minutes. And, mm-hmm. and you're, you're coming off a game in which you, you were competitive to an extent against Baylor. You, you turned the ball over 25 times. I, I said uh, on the last podcast, that was, that was the, probably the, the breaking point was the 25 turnovers against, against the Bears. And, and Porter Moser said, you know what, we're, we're going we're gonna to change some things there. And so you see uh, Bijan Cortez get 20 minutes. I love what you're seeing from Marvin Johnson, just his energy, 21 minutes, Elijah Harkless four. And not in, not only was it just four minutes, but he's out of the starting lineup now. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, you know, you saw Goldwire, of course he had foul trouble fouling out uh, of the game, but he only got 22 minutes. Is that what you're talking about when you're saying that, that Moisure's tinkering with some things you're talking about, you know, uh, I, I like Harkless who has all I conference am. type ability, but he's getting four minutes. I, I am absolutely. And what I believe that that Mosier's doing here, Matt, is he, it, it's not to say, look, the, you don't have a spot on this team. You don't have a spot in this rotation. You don't have a skill set that we could utilize. It's not saying that at all, but it's looking at the numbers. And ultimately what we saw from, from Harkless was a guy who was shooting below 30% from the field during the four game losing streak averaged eight points and really you expect him to set the tone. I know defensively he does bring a lot of energy to the floor, but unfortunately when you're shooting at a lower percentage than the rest of the team, you can be looked at as a bit of a detriment. Oklahoma and Porter Mosier decided to go big. It was a vast change from what we've seen in the past, because for years and years, Matt, I've grown accustomed to seeing Oklahoma play undersized. Mm -hmm. Didn't matter who the coach was. That was something I thought we would shift away from with a lot of the transfers who are coming in, but it's taken 20 games before we've actually seen Oklahoma go big with a starting five with Jacob Groves entering that starting lineup. Mm-hmm. It was a curveball. It was enough of a curveball, obviously, for West Virginia that it kind of took them out of their rhythm. And when you add in a guy who has shot blocking ability at 6'9, a guy who can simply clog the lane because of their length. It changes how you have to attack that defense. And what we know about West Virginia and their brand is that it's been a very physical style of basketball. I'm not going to complain with going for this larger starting five to combat maybe some of that physicality. But ultimately, I think it's because of some of these this downward trend. It's been cold here in January, but it's been extremely cold for Elijah Harkless. So who's your, who would you say is your player of the game for Oklahoma? And why is it Jacob Groves? I mean, Tanner Groves. <laughs> I was going to say, it's not Jacob Groves. <laughs> it is, it is Tanner Groves. You look at the growth, the maturity, the leadership of this individual on the court. And it's very easy. And I think this is from game to game. Granted, I think there are players who had bigger moments than Tanner Groves did in this game, but the way that he contributes in nearly every facet of the game, he's always going to submit himself as that centerpiece on this, this program under Porter Mosher's direction and in his schematics. He's always going to submit himself as a candidate for that. But you look at the productivity, and if I have to say this is the reason that you can remove Elijah Harkless from the starting five, then it has to be the exact same qualifier for why Tanner, Tanner Groves is my player of the game. 
So let's talk about Bijan Cortez for just a second, because I agree with you on Tanner Groves, absolutely player of the game, and really not even a question mark um, about it. But Bijan Cortez scores four points there in the waning seconds of the game. Wouldn't you consider? I guess I could have made this a true or false question, but it's, it's too late now. Would you consider that to be like what the like most crucial four points uh, of the game? Because you know he shoots, he shoots a pair of free throws to put OU up by eight, and then immediately gets a steal. And then I think it was Marvin Johnson. He got the ball to Johnson back to Cortez for the, for the basket and just a quick four point swing to, to really kind of finalize it. How critical was that? And what are your thoughts of, of Cortez uh, in, in just overall as a freshman and, and seeing his minutes increasing? I, I think the pivotal moment is somewhere else for me. You got okay. the name, correct. It was Marvin Johnson. It's the, the, the block from behind oh, right. the dunk yes. that, that basically seals the deal that West Virginia is not going to pull this comeback. Yes, you like to see the points at the end. Yes, you especially like to see them coming from a freshman in these high-pressure situations. Mm-hmm. For a freshman to produce, it's, it's not extremely common. Does it happen? Yes. Does it happen consistently? Not so much. And So when I look at a guy like Bijan Cortez, I thought he he had a lot of talent coming out of high school, but I also know the college realm is a completely different ballpark. Can I use that when we're talking about basketball, a yeah. ballpark? You can say um, it, it's, it's a different arena. It's a different realm. Okay, we'll go with that route. <laughs> For me, the speed and the size of the players changes drastically as that pool of talent kind of condenses when it hits that Division One level. So Matt, I'll say this about Cortez is I think he has all the tools to be successful. I just don't know if the hair's getting in the way. <laughs> okay. uh, he's got, he probably has as, as a freshman, a true freshman, uh, the most iconic hair in the big 12, I, I would say uh, definitely top two or top three. Yeah, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but what it seems like they're wanting to do with Cortez is really run him as the point. The, no, I definitely think that's where his future is. Right. The downside is that he has players who are in front of him who have well, much more experience. He's got Goldwire. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm a little bit surprised, you know, Jordan Goldwire with, um, he had three assists, but he had four turnovers. And this is a guy who was like top three in the ACC last season and assist to turnover ratio. And so I'm, I'm a little bit surprised at, at that. He's one of the ones who's guilty of being careless with the basketball, but I, I do feel like next season, you know, Goldwire is here for one year. And I think next season you do see Cortez take right. over in that realm as the team's point guard. And, and there's still some things when you watch his game, you, th- you think, yeah, he's a true freshman. I mean, there was an instance last night where you had a chance on a breakaway um, and he just put it on the floor too long, too fast and around too many people and lost it right back. And, and so he has those moments still that he's a, a true freshman. And you talked about the, this, the change in the speed of from, from the prep level to the collegiate level. But a year from now, that, that won't be the case with him. He, he'll, he's the type of guy that's a gym rat that's going to learn. You see the flashes like in the closing seconds uh, of the West Virginia game Wednesday mm-hmm. night where you just think, man, this guy's got all of the factors. He's just got to put it all together. Right. Um, but I, I agree. I, I think ultimately they're, they're grooming him to, to be the point guard upon the, the departure of, of Jordan Goldwire. So we'll, we'll see his, his biggest asset for me is his, his awareness mm-hmm. on Absolutely. the court. If we're looking at what he brings to the table that 
you don't see from any other player on the roster. It's, it's a certain level of awareness, but that weakness, and we've already mentioned this, I'm just reiterating it for a third time. That weakness comes in the, the level of competition. Yeah. You could do that a year ago, but those are things that, that they simply aren't as easy to do at that next level. And so he'll learn to adjust. He'll of course begin to shape his game and remove some of those facets that are hindering him. And then of course, work on those things that will, will enable him to be more and more successful and more importantly, take over games later. Cause I do think he has that capability. Yeah. The good news is of Oklahoma's 11 assists in the West Virginia game, six of them came from Goldwire and Cortez three each. You flip that over. The bad news is, and this is where I want to I want to head to next. The bad news is of Oklahoma's 17 turnovers, over half of them came from the combo of, of Goldwire and Cortez. Bijan with five turnovers, Jordan Goldwire with four. Moving forward, again, we're going to talk about Auburn here in just a second. I want to I want to put that aside. But moving forward, to me, Rich, the turnovers, this is the biggest factor here for this team. They're, all basketball teams are going to be spotty, particularly from three-point range. Oklahoma wasn't terrific against West Virginia, only 5 of 14. Uh, but altogether, they shot over 50% from the floor. You're going to have good nights and bad nights. And a lot, a lot of times, you can still win on a bad night when you play defensively, like they did against Baylor, like they did against West Virginia, like they did against Kansas. But when you turn the ball over 25 times like you did against Baylor, that, that's, that's, the, that's the backbreaker. That's the difference maker. And then you see it again. To me, 17 still too many turnovers, particularly on the road, but you still get the win. When I'm, when I'm looking at this team moving forward after the Auburn game back into Big 12 play, turnovers, that, to me, that's, that's the thing. You got to minimize the turnovers. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and couple that because turnovers will very easily decide the outcome. It, it's that one thing in basketball that can be the, mo- the momentum killer. Right. As you're charging down court and the ball, either you make an errant pass or you get stripped and it's headed back the other way. I mean, we can talk about the expenditure of energy. We can talk about how you're immediately on your heels, just trying to get into a defensive position and stop this fast break that's happening. There's a lot that goes in to those momentum swings, but it all pivots upon the turnovers themselves. The second thing, Matt, that I wanted to couple with it was was free throw shooting. Mm-hmm. And I think that Oklahoma, when we look at the West Virginia game, shot over 90% from, from the free throw line. That's something that hasn't happened in three years. The last time was in, in 2019. It may not have been a full three years, but I know the year was 2019. Right. If that was December, I, I, I don't recall. Um, but the last time Oklahoma shot over 90% from the free throw line was in 2019. And you look at a team that's willing to get into the lane, that's willing to challenge the rim, that's willing to attack the rim and at least put the ball into the air is going to have a lot of success because all of a sudden what happens, some of these key defenders find themselves in foul trouble and an opposing coach has to dip into their rotation Mm -hmm. and pull some players out who don't necessarily have that, that same level of talent. So when you're facing some of these top tier teams, Texas, Texas tech, Baylor, there's more than a handful Kansas here in the big 12 alone, where you can begin to shift or shape the game by attacking the rim on a consistent basis, but, but backing it up by knocking down those free throws. Yeah, that's, that's a very fair, fair point. And, and you just kind of hope based off of what you saw on Wednesday night against West Virginia, where they only missed one out of 22 free throws that 
maybe that's that mental aspect of it has been broached and, and fixed by Porter Moser and his crew, but we'll find out. So let's jump back into the schedule, Rich. Oklahoma lost January 15th um, at TCU, 59-58 in overtime. It was the second in that string of four consecutive losses. It was the only one of those losses that wasn't to a ranked team um, in that string of four. That was a huge, huge thing for Oklahoma. And the reason why, because I've said this in previous podcasts, is when you when you lose one at home, you got to pick up one on the road in conference play. Now, they did that uh, Wednesday night in Morgantown. But if you had that win in Fort Worth at TCU January 15th, if that's a win, then you're pretty much a wash at 500 in conference play and you're back on track. You got Auburn coming up, but then you're home against TCU. You got you got to protect your home court. And then it's Bedlam, February 5th, Saturday, February 5th, in Stillwater, your chance to kind of even the record and pick up that road win that you need to get back to 500. So here's where I'm getting at. Um, Does this Auburn game, in my opinion, I don't think it matters. This is just a one-off. You're stepping out of conference. You're probably not going to win. Best case scenario is you don't get embarrassed. But, I mean, is that – what do they have to gain – if you beat Auburn, you're still not going to be in the top 25. If you lose Auburn, everybody expects that. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking, how much stock should we as fans put in to going on the road to playing the top team in the country when it doesn't matter for conference yeah. standards? Yeah, I don't know that we should put a lot of stock into it. There's a lot of opportunity, and there's a lot to gain from right. this because all of a sudden, Oklahoma has this marquee win on their resume. And Matt, I knew I threw out this true or false question to you, but when you look at the potential of going sub 500 in conference play mm-hmm. that that still exists, but you can harken back to a win over a number one ranked team. And when it comes NCAA birth time, guess who's, who's getting the nod over a team that doesn't have a marquee when despite a losing record in conference play, it could be someone from the big 12. So again, I think there's a lot to gain from this type of game. There's a lot of opportunity, not only that, but you also have a lot of eyes that will be tuning in to a game like this, just because your opponent has the number one next to their name. I don't know that it's going to do anything for Oklahoma in recruiting. I don't think a loss hurts Oklahoma, but again, the opportunity that's presented, whether you just remain competitive or you do somehow squeak out a win the ball's in your court and you have the favorable outlook after that. Right. And you're, what you're saying is one of those situations where you do have everything to gain and literally nothing to lose. But even, even with the loss, I I think you look back to the win over Florida, the win over Arkansas, the win over Iowa state, you've got marquee wins already. Now Auburn clearly would be the, the cream of the crop in terms of winning. But if you're asking me to prioritize the next three games, just in my opinion, TCU in Norman on, on Monday, January 31st, and then Bedlam in Stillwater on Saturday, February 5th. Those are the two biggest games coming up out of the three on the, uh, the, the next three on the schedule. Just list those off for me again. So you got Auburn, uh, your next three games, you mm-hmm. got Auburn, then TCU at home, and then Bedlam on the road. When you, when you look at those three games, to me, Auburn ranks third out of those three games in, in the area of importance to this team. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would definitely agree to your statement. That matchup with TCU in Norman, 
I know Oklahoma is going to be looking the roster. These players are going to be looking back at the schedule and saying, we know we let one slip through our hands. Mm-hmm. We're not going to let that happen again. This is home court defend it. And then when you head into a rivalry game, it always takes on a different persona. And Oklahoma right. has a lot of players who didn't grow up around this rivalry who have probably never heard of Bedlam basketball. They may not have any familiarity with Oklahoma State, but in their time in Norman, I mean, that there's even a new head coach who may not have any familiarity with it. So all the way around, there's a very select few who I guess will be charged with instilling this hatred of Oklahoma State. I would agree with you. Auburn would be third on that list. I don't know if I put Oklahoma State at number one, though. I definitely think I would. Uh, because you got to pick up one on the road. But then the flip side of that is you can't drop any more at home because you got Texas Tech lurking uh, mm-hmm. here in the near future. And then you got Texas lurking here in the near future. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe they're 1A and 1B, and then you put Auburn down at three. I, I don't know how you, <laughs> how you rank those. But clearly, in my mind, I think in what you're saying, you agree that those next two conference games are more, hold more value, more weight, towards the success of Oklahoma's march towards the NCAA tournament than this Auburn game does. Exactly. And the unfortunate scenario for me is I'm viewing this Auburn game as an opportunity for some of the players who don't necessarily get playing time to earn that playing time by, by virtue of Auburn just being that good. They are the surprise team in the NCAA across the entire board. They're the surprise team Mm -hmm. for me claiming that number one ranking. And apparently they're not willing to let it go at least thus far. They have not been willing to let that go. Oklahoma, again, Matt, it'll be a good experience for them because they're going to see just how much work has to be done, but it's not as meaningful as these conference games. I don't think that it ever will be, regardless of of the name that's there. It could be Kentucky. It could be Alabama. It could be Arkansas. It could be Florida. It doesn't really matter for me. It doesn't hold a candle to, to conference play. Okay, we got some thoughts on the football recruiting as Oklahoma gets ready to close out the 2022 class. We got some late uh, crystal ball predictions that are coming in. We also have true or false coming up where I finally get to ask somebody else questions. Um, This is the Sooner Nation podcast. Okay, Rich, Oklahoma had a big uh, recruiting weekend last weekend in Norman, still waiting on some commitments to come out of that. But let's start by just kind of doing a little snapshot of where this class is right now for Oklahoma. The Sooners are sitting at number 10 nationally, number two in the Big 12. They've got 15 kids with a signed letter of intent. You've you've got um, Gentry Williams, who's really you got 16 because I count Jaron Kanak as being one of those kids with a signed letter of intent because he's on campus in school working out with his team. Clearly he's committed. Um, Gentry Williams, the, the holdout right now, the number one player in the state of Oklahoma. He was one that was on campus over the weekend. The, the reports are he's sticking with his commitment that he's going to be uh, an Oklahoma sooner. And you and I never really got to talk about him. Um, I didn't really have a problem with the way he did it. Um, he, he didn't, ever decommit from from his commitment to the Sooners he just said I just I need a pause I, I need to hear from this coaching staff I need to see who the defensive coordinator is going to be and I need to know about my position coach and then we'll we'll move forward from there um I I feel like it was kind of a responsible way for him to handle his commitment to playing collegiate football yeah I'm not going to disagree with you there you 
absolutely in, in the midst of a coaching change, want to meet those who will be responsible for your growth and your development. Right. If, if the goal is the NFL, that is a very mature decision and way to approach this, this whole shift that's happened here in Norman, instead of immediately decommitting. And I know we saw that from a, a few players who then entered their names into the transfer portal Whatever it may have been, whether they recommitted or they pulled their name out of that transfer portal, those were the knee-jerk reactions. And mm -hmm. those are the things that make <laughs> make you as a fan say, oh my goodness, what is happening here? Needless to say, Gentry Williams, Matt, I, I think this weekend is the thing that will sell him right. on the University of Oklahoma, meeting the coaches, meeting the individuals who will be responsible for that development in his time as a university player at, at the collegiate level, meeting them and, and hearing what they have to say, there, there's no doubt in my mind that he would be sold on Oklahoma. We're recording this on January 27th, uh, just, a, just over a week out from National Signing Day. Um, one, one, that, one player that we've talked about on the Sooner Nation podcast uh, out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, is Ahmad Moten. And he was another kid that was on campus last weekend for this recruiting push that, that Oklahoma did. And today uh, you had multiple crystal ball predictions come out for him to come to the University of Oklahoma. Um, and one of those being the Southeast uh, recruiting analyst, uh, Andrew, Ar Ar Andrew Ivins uh, for 24-7 Sports. And he, you know, he, he picks Moulton to come to Oklahoma. And I think the reason why that's a, a big deal is because he wants to play with his buddy, which is our Mason Thomas, um, who is a, a, an edge rusher who is currently committed to Iowa state. These two guys are high school teammates out of Fort Lauderdale and they want to play together in college is, is the word on the street. So if you're getting crystal ball predictions from Moten, it means you probably have a good inside track with, with Thomas. So it looks like as Oklahoma wraps up rich, this, this, 2022 class you when you're talking about just prep athletes uh, alone they're making a strong strong push on the defensive side of the ball uh and because all these guys that are that are late minute guys um they're all on the defensive side and so i guess my question is do you do you look at this as a a change in fundamental philosophy do you look at it as, as a, I mean, there's a lot of talk about how Schmitty has come in and, and the workouts he's doing, how just vastly different they were under the Lincoln Riley regime is, I mean, where do you give credit for, for these late pushes from, from the defensive guys on the defensive side? I really attribute it to the name Brent Venables. This is a guy who's won national championships as a defensive coordinator with Clemson. He was a staple in Clemson's rise to power and them remaining at this, this level of competing in the college football playoff. Now I know last year was a bit of an anomaly for them. Um, no Trevor Lawrence breaking mm -hmm. in a new quarterback. There's a lot that's happening for Clemson off the field as well, in terms of some of these coaching changes that they'll now, now have to deal with. I don't know how long Clemson will remain in that college football playoff picture, but it's not to say that Brent Venables wasn't there and helped them establish that. And maybe his removal kind of removed some of the prowess 
that they had, or maybe some of this ideology that this is a football power because of what they're doing on the defensive side of the ball. Again, Matt, what, what I'm getting at is Brent Venables making that move back to Norman and seeing the body of work players up and down the East coast are in my opinion, just because of the culture, these blue collar players, they're going to go out and they're going to work hard and they're going to give maximum effort. And when you have a guy who's recruited up and down the East coast, now coming back to the central part of the United States, he's going to draw not just defensive talent, but still those blue collar type players, because that's who he can relate with. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, I want to, I want to throw a couple other names out here that we haven't really had a chance to, to talk about, um, more, more recently, um, two more again, defensive side of the ball. Um, and they're Grayson Halton is out of, um, San Diego, California. Um, he is, uh, an edge rusher, six, three, 270. He's got, He's got a, a good frame on him. He's the number 23 player from the state of California, the number 33 overall defensive lineman in this recruiting class. Long thought to be heading towards Oregon, but again, exactly what you're saying. You're, you're seeing crystal ball predictions come in yesterday and today. Again, we're recording this on the 27th of January, saying that this kid, wait a minute, you know, pump the brakes. Um, this kid's looking at Oklahoma. Brendan Huffman is one of those guys who just today, this morning, 24-7 Sports National Recruiting Editor says, um, yeah, he's, he's coming to OU. And, and between Wednesday and Thursday, there's been four um, crystal ball predictions. Two of them are not from the Oklahoma Insider crew. So when you see national guys begin to, uh, to begin to throw these crystal ball predictions, are guys who cover other teams, one of the guys who made a prediction for Halton is from a, um, it covers Penn State. But suddenly, when you look at the percentages, Oklahoma has more crystal ball predictions than Oregon does, a slight edge. So this is a kid that's probably going to go right up to National Signing Day. But it, he, it's a big name because it's a four-star edge rusher. And then you get this athlete that a lot of people hadn't heard from or heard of, but suddenly he's jumping in there, three-star athlete, um, from the state of, of Cal, uh, excuse me, of, of Florida again, uh, Os uh, Osela, Os you're the Florida kid, Rich, O-C-A-L-A, Osela, Florida. Does that sound right? O-C-L-A-A. O-C-A-L-A. Oh. Just I say would Osela. Say make, me, make me sound right, okay? Yeah, there you go, Osela. Perfect right, for you. He's the uh, number 59 ranked player from the state of Florida, the number 28 ranked athlete in this class. Uh, Jamarian Burt is his name. And again, just a, a late arrival, a late addition uh, to, to speculation. Utah was in on him. Florida was in on him. Arkansas was in on him. And it looked like he had been kind of heading towards, uh, towards Utah. He visited there on January 14th. And then <laughs> last weekend, he was in Oklahoma uh, for that, again, the big recruiting push. And now he's projected to be a, a guy who could add to this class. So I guess all that said, I'm going to ask you a big question. When you look at Oklahoma's 2022 class and you look at these projections, how many do you think realistically, how many more does Oklahoma add to this class? I'm going to back up just for a split second, because I thought you were saying that was the kid's name. So I'm oh, like, no, 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 no. Googling. That's a location in Florida. Sorry. Yeah. 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 So I was like, I don't know how you say his name. It could be pronounced anyway. Jamarian Burt is his name. You're talking about the city. Um, yeah. You're way off, man. How I'm is sorry. it? Osala? No, Okala. 
Oh, is it a K sound? Uh, yeah. Uh, see, it's all you, good though. You know, most people in Oklahoma wouldn't have known that, but since you're I know, the Florida you know, guy, you know, Oklahoma has all these these names that are native, like Miami, Native American. Yeah, but it looks like Miami. I mean, we have a lot of a lot of cities in Oklahoma that people would struggle to pronounce. Florida's the same <laughs> same way because <laughs> of Seminole Nation. You right. know, needless to say, moving on from there. Um, Matt, I, I don't know that this was going to be a big class from start to finish um, just because of the number of transfers that Oklahoma is taking. When you look at this 2022 recruiting cycle and you know that Oklahoma has 10 transfers coming in, I don't know if you're counting that or if you're just saying oh, we're looking at the prep level. Yeah, just we're talking only prep level uh, uh, at this moment because, look, the, the prep cycle is going to close in, in a week mm-hmm. or so. But this transfer portal, that that's going to go all the way through the spring into the summer when guys make their decisions, but you're, you, you're going to close out this 2022 recruiting class. Um, and then information, you know, it goes hundred percent towards the portal, but I'm just talking about as of right now, when, when you look at mm-hmm. how this class lines up, number 10 nationally, number two in the big 12, 15 guys, will they get to 20? Will they get to 22? What, what's your thought? How many more do you think prep level wise that they add to this class? Yeah, you're, you're saying 15. I still think they add Gentry Williams. I think they add Jaron Kanak. I think they could potentially at that 17 number and realistically add at least three more recruits to that. I would put the over under at 21. Okay. Though adding four more seems as though there are some needs that have to be addressed on this roster. So adding four more seems as though it's, it's very feasible. When you get to that 22 number, I think Oklahoma is going to start pushing it. That means someone else is leaving. Yeah. And I I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see some more departures post spring football. We saw that last year, you know, Oklahoma brings in, some of the Tennessee guys, you see Brendan Radley Hiles exit after spring. I, I think you're going to see some more of that. I think that number is probably closer to 22 because um, you're right. Kanak and, and Williams, that's, that's going to be 17. I, I think they add at least four more. So I, I'm right there on that 21 number, but I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them uh, jump in and add 22 guys to the roster through the prep. And which is a nuts because think about it you you just said 10 transfers which is spot on and then you add 22 prep guys that's that's 32 guys you're you're mm-hmm. nearly you're nearly re- replacing half of your roster through the transfer portal and through recruiting which is just unheard of but then again it's uh, that's should be expected i guess with the coaching change i would venture for me it it, it is a yes it's just the the nature of what the NCAA has created, this monster known as the transfer portal. Right. Will more changes trickle down from it? I don't know, but there are a lot of people who are complaining about the current transfer portal, how it's organized, and, and really what that means. It's the free agency is the best description that I've heard used. It's the free agency of the college market. Yeah, no, that's 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 spot on. I, I think there, there's no better description uh, particularly with the with the NIL deals that uh, free agency is spot on the way you would describe this. True or false coming up. That's how we're going to close out the podcast. We got five questions for Rich. He's going to our statements. He's going to tell us whether they're true, whether they're false and the reason why this is the Sooner Nation podcast.
Guys, we always want you to have your opportunity to participate in the podcast. There's multiple ways you can do that. You can hit us up on Twitter at Sports Heartland on Twitter. Uh, you can find us on the internet, heartland-sports.com. For every episode of the podcast, we have a specific post on the website. So if you got a follow-up thought or comment or question to the episode, you can find us there. As well as if you'd like to submit your questions for uh, True or False, we'd love to hear from you guys on that. Uh, today, it's me talking to Rich uh, because you guys have heard nothing but me answering these questions for almost the last month now. So uh, I'm excited, Rich, to put somebody else in this position. And uh, we're going we're gonna to jump into this and we're going to go uh, right now. Are you, are you ready? <laughs> ready as I'll ever be. All right. So we're going to start off with a football uh, question because we've been talking football for the last, you know, good portion of this podcast. So before we change gears to a, another sport, let's stick with football. And let me ask you this. Um, the majority of Sooner Nation is just done with the Caleb Williams saga and ready to move on to Dylan Gabriel. True or false? The majority, man, operative word there. I'm going to go ahead and say true. And a large reason for me in, in making that statement of true and in agreeing with what you're saying here is that all of these reports that Caleb Williams has already moved out of Norman, mm -hmm. when we begin to talk about the schools that are consistently mentioned, they're in tandem with Caleb Williams name. It's never been Oklahoma, despite back when, when I think it was January 6th, Caleb Williams enters the transfer portal, transfer portal. He tweets out this, this memo or this note that has been written saying that Oklahoma is still in the running. And while I think a large majority of people, a large majority of fans believed that up front, they never believed Oklahoma was a front runner for mm -hmm. a guy like Caleb Williams, knowing what's transpired, knowing that a USC quarterback in Jackson Dart has now entered his name. It's kind of like the writing is on the wall. If it isn't USC, who I still believe is the front runner, it could very well be Wisconsin or it could be LSU. But again, Matt, there's no real tie to Oklahoma anymore. And so I have to go with true. A majority of fans are done with the, the Caleb Williams saga and are ready for spring football and to see what Dylan Gabriel brings to the table. So let me ask you this. This is a bonus question. This doesn't count against, against my five. Um, but, uh, could you say the same thing with Jackson dart? I mean, now that you've got Jackson Arnold coming in on the 2023 recruiting class, you've got Dylan Gabriel, maybe for two years, if, if he wants to stay and you want to keep him, uh, does that, does that soften the blow? Is that the anticipation for Jackson dart as well? I mean, Evers is on this roster or will be right. on this roster. Yeah, he, he is a freshman now in this, in this class, right. this 2022 class. And he's yeah, on campus. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's not like Oklahoma doesn't have quarterbacks but when we look at the trajectory under bob stoops into lincoln riley and now brent venables it's always been dominated by record-setting quarterbacks oklahoma will continuously the fan base mm -hmm. especially will continuously vie for a quarterback that can put up those types of numbers and it's it's just an unfortunate scenario to walk into because not everybody and there are some names that were record-breaking quarterbacks that just weren't well liked aka landry jones mm -hmm. for whatever reason no one was ever wasn't. no i ever i know the reason landry jones <laughs> wasn't liked because he wasn't sam bradford right you had sam bradford before that 
I know the name everyone wants to go to is Josh Heupel and a national championship winning quarterback. Um, we forget about some of the other names who were extremely talented, but here's the thing for me, Matt, anything can happen in recruiting, right. And players can be dismissed with a moment's noticed from a team. So stockpiling quarterbacks, three is a great number. I would love for it to be four scholarship quarterbacks on this roster. So I don't know from my personal standpoint, if this is the majority or it isn't the majority, I'm fine either way. My standpoint is that I'm still holding out for a guy like Jackson Dart, largely because I think he has more upside than a guy mm -hmm. like Dylan Gabriel, but I'm still excited about what Dylan Gabriel brings to the table. What concerns me is the injury he sustained. Yeah, there's a lot of people talk about that, and I, and I think that's fair. But I, again, I, I, I think a lot of Oklahoma fans are just overlooking the the straight baller that, that Dylan Gabriel is right. You know, very athletic I, under underestimated athletic. Yeah, and I keep going back to the stats, 8,000 yards in, in less than three seasons, because he set out the majority of 2021 with, with injury. But, um, and a lot of people, again, they criticize, I, I've said this. So people who listen to the podcast regularly have heard me say, but they, they criticize the level of competition that he's, he stacked this 8,000 yards against, but let's, let's not forget you mentioned Josh Heupel, Snow Junior College before he came to Norman. So mm -hmm. uh, if Josh Heupel could do it, I, I think there's a, there's a, a road Warner. for that. <laughs> um, okay, so that was number one, and then the bonus. Let, let's move on. Uh, what'd you say? I said and Kurt Warner. And Kurt Warner. Uh, right. I mean, Aaron um, Rodgers went to Cal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I, Matt, I'm just saying there's a lot of names just because you don't think they have the potential to be great right. doesn't mean that that doesn't exist within them. Fair enough. Um, okay. So let's, I, I lost my place here. Mo moving on. We're going to, we're going to swap sports. Now we're going to move to softball because that takes place uh, really quick. The Sooners getting ready to open up their title defense um, going for 10 in a row in the terms of big 12 championships. But here's my question for you, Rich. We saw this team, you know, with the rise of Jada Coleman, uh, Tierra Jennings, and of course the, the uh, ever present uh, Jocelyn Allo, who's just spectacular on the offensive side of the ball. True or false, as good as Oklahoma was offensively in 2021, they're going to shatter the records in 2022. Uh, I do believe that one to be true. And the truth of the matter is that 2021 team, I didn't think was as good as some previous teams that had been put together. I was proven wrong mm -hmm. in that. And Matt, we can go back. I want to say it was 2016. It was basically a team full of freshmen that won a national championship. And then they repeated in 2017. Is that correct? Those two years? Right. That was the Sydney Romero, a big play Shay. You know, I know you had Paige that Parker was in the circle. Right. And that the marathon game against Florida, but that was 20, if that was 2016, 2017. Awesome. My, my point is that that was a team full of freshmen that won that national championship. We now have another team full of freshmen who won a national championship, but we're seeing the, this evolution of the game that's being embodied mm -hmm. by these freshmen. And when I thought that the Sydney Romero's and the and the Shea Knightons were the cream of the crop. This this new recruiting class has come in and said, "Look, we know what they did 
We saw what they were capable of. We're going to do the same thing, but we want to push it beyond that. And I do think that they're very capable of doing that. You do have a lot of star power, especially when you talk top to bottom in this lineup. The real question mark comes in the circle for Oklahoma because they're finding themselves in uncharted territory. So will they break records offensively? Absolutely. When we talk about the season that's ahead, though, the defense is the bigger question mark. No, I agree. I, I don't think it's defense as much as it is pitching. Because they, correct they, pitching. You know, they're they're very sound defensively. They return everybody, uh, including one of the things you and I debated was where Grace Lyons fits in the pecking order of of uh, of shortstops in right. And in, 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 I think she's the best in in all of college softball. Which is crazy because she didn't come with the same um, rising star power. She didn't, she didn't come in to the college ranks with this, the same clout as some of these other players who sit on Oklahoma's roster. Yeah, I agree. And the fact that she wasn't, uh, she wasn't mentioned for all big 12 is just ridiculous. I I digress. Uh, I did Google (laughs) it up while you were talking 2016, 2017. Yeah. And, and think about this. I mean, we're obviously 2020 didn't happen because of COVID, but of the last five national championships in softball, OU's won three of the last five. So mm-hmm. the, just it just again builds to the the what what Kath, um, what Patty Gasso, Patty Gasso has going. I don't know where I start to say Kathy, but Patty Gasso has going on here uh, in Norman and what she has built. Okay, so let's move out of softball. Uh, we're gonna go now to basketball, and uh, we got a couple of questions about the Groves brothers, and, uh, and so I'm just gonna throw these out at you. Uh, true or false? Tanner Groves has got to get back to being the leading scorer for Oklahoma like he was against West Virginia in order for the Sooners to get back on track uh, for the NCAA tournament. Yeah, that one's true. And I've said this from the get-go. When Mosier was hired, that we would see this natural progression from playing outside in to playing inside out. That was what led Oklahoma to a lot of success. They were spreading the floor. You had guards who had the ability of knocking down the, the, the jump shot when the ball was kicked out from a guy like Tanner Groves. Needless to say, that was the recipe for success. And it also led to high percentage shots regardless of where they were coming from on the floor. An unchallenged shot has a better opportunity of going in than a guy with his hand directly in your face and with the opportunity to just slightly knock that ball off course. When we look at what Oklahoma was doing, Matt, there at the first half of the season before they started conference play, I think absolutely 100% that is what they need to get back to as it's where this team not only has found success, but it seemed to have been their strength. Why they deviated from that, I don't know, but maybe the change of not just having Tanner Groves, but Jacob Groves on the floor as well will help Oklahoma get back into that kind of form. Yeah, good. Uh, well, we're going to stay with the Groves family, uh, and it's uh, based off of West Virginia game on Wednesday night, true or false, Jacob Groves needs to stay in the starting lineup with his brother. <laughs> oh man, that, that's a good question. That's a, a really good question. I'm not the head coach here. I don't see what happens in practice, but I also can't deny the value of a guy like Elijah Harkless. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'll say. I am going to go with true on this one because until, until a guy like Elijah Harkless can prove that he deserves a spot in the starting lineup, Jacob Groves is the answer for me. And it's for a lot of the reasons that I mentioned with this previous 
question, but additionally is now we've talked about how physical the big 12 is. And when you're able to bang bodies, when you're able to pull the ball off the glass, simply by adding height and then push in fast break. Cause we have to remember Tanner and Jacob Groves are no slouches when it comes to moving up and down the court. These are guys who have the conditioning to do so and are willing, <laughs> are willing to run the court, but the guards have to reward them because they'll only do that for so long. So it's a catch 22 for me. I do think the recipe for success is going with this big starting five until someone figures it out until someone proves that it can be stopped and it can be stopped on a consistent basis. Jacob Grove should be in the starting lineup for me. He's also a stretch four, just in case you wanted that. Hey, I will take it. Uh, the more basketball talk, the better, uh, especially this time of year, as we get ready to turn the calendar to February and uh, you know, just so happens our last question is also about basketball. And this is a topic that we have addressed multiple times uh, since December, as we go through the start of the basketball season, the leading up to big 12 conference play. And now here we are addressing it. I think this is at least the third time we've addressed it, <laughs> but I'm going to throw it out there because Oklahoma just snapped her four game losing streak, but sure or false Oklahoma is still on track for a berth in the NCAA tournament. I, I do believe that one to be true. Oklahoma, if we just wanted to look at their resume thus far, I think they've put together a decent resume. It's not a great one, but it's definitely not a poor one. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's slightly above average for me, which when you look at the league that Oklahoma plays in, when you know that out of the 10 teams that are currently playing in the Big 12 Conference, that seven, potentially eight of them typically make the cut for the NCAA tournament, the odds are already in their favor. When we begin to look at finishing within that top seven, maybe even getting a win in the Big 12 tournament, it's going to go a long way for a program like Oklahoma, despite where they finish in the regular season. Is Oklahoma on track 13 and is it seven or is it 13 and six 13, 13 and seven yeah. they're not off track but they can get there so this is a question that will wean and wane for a little bit until we settle the score at the end of the regular season yeah i definitely feel like we've not uh hit the last part of this conversation that it, it'll come back around uh, multiple times probably between now and in mid-march that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Sooner Nation podcast. We want to say thank you to everybody who tunes in and listens. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whichever podcast service provider you're using. Hit us up. Let us know what you think. Give us your thoughts, your questions. We'd love to address those on future episodes of the Sooner Nation podcast as well. Have a fantastic weekend, everybody. Boomer Sooner.